Welcome to the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival podcast. This is season one, episode 26, Hopefully Ever After, stories of joy and dreams in Latinx middle grade novels. With authors Emma Otegi, Chantel Acevedo, Reina Luz Alegre, Adriana Cuevas, and Dona Barba Higuera. Enjoy the show. Hello, bienvenidos to the first ever Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. As you're joining us, please read our anti-harassment policy in the chat box, and please remember to be kind in all of your comments. I am Emma Otegi. If you're trying to remember lately, later, how do you pronounce that woman's name? You can remember that Otegi rhymes with Peggy. I am the author of several picture books and novels for kids. Most recently, Carmen Sandiego, Secrets of the Silver Lion. So today I'm going to introduce our panelists and then we're gonna hear a little bit about their books. I'm gonna start with Chantel. Chantel Acevedo is the author of the middle grade novel, Muse Squad, which school library journal called Riveting and Suspenseful. She's a professor of English at the University of Miami, where she directs the MFA program. Reina Luz Alegre is the author of the middle grade novel Dreamweaver, which is about a summer bowling tournament, the Jersey Shore, and a family of big dreamers. She is a freelance journalist and lawyer and lives in Florida. Adriana Cuevas is the author of the middle, middle grade novel, The Total Eclipse of Nestor Lopez, and the forthcoming novel, Cuba in My Pocket. She works with TOEFL students in Austin, Texas. Dona Higuera is the author of the middle grade novel, Lupe Wong Won't Dance, and the forthcoming picture book, El Cucuy is Scared Too. Donna lives in Washington State with her family. So now I want to hear a little bit about all of these books. Chantel, can you tell us about your book? Sure. Thank you, Emma. I'm so glad to be here with all of you. Um, so as Emma said, my book is Muse Squad, The Cassandra Curse, and it's the first uh, middle grade book in a duology. Um, the second book comes out in July of 21. So in Muse Squad, the main character is an 11-year-old Cuban-American girl named Callie who discovers she's one of the nine muses of Greek myth when she accidentally turns her best friend into a pop star. And once that happens, of course, she gets to meet the other muses, um, three of whom are 11 years old, as she is, and it's a very diverse cast, and they get tasked with inspiring others and ultimately saving the world from some pretty rascally villains. Um, and so that's me, Squad. Amazing. Reina. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Emma, for the intro. I'm so excited to be here with you all and to be part of this incredible festival. Um, I'm the author of The Dreamweaver. And The Dreamweaver is about a 12-year-old girl named Zoe who has spent her entire life moving from place to place um, because her dad is um, very restless and um, can't really hold on a job. He's always chasing like another 
dream. And this summer, the summer right before um, um, uh, seventh grade, her life entirely just changes um, because he moves it, he moves her in with her grandpa, who she hasn't really been close with. He's her mom's dad, and her mom passed away before the book started um, when she was a little girl. And she's um, she realizes when she gets there that Grandpa's bowling alley is in really big trouble, and he's about to lose his business. And meanwhile, Dad is off chasing another opportunity and left her alone. And her brother, who she's always counted on for everything, is heading to college in another state. And so she feels like really scared and, and really on the cusp of a lot of, of, of change. And so she um, decides that she's going to help her grandpa save his business. And meanwhile, she's also reconnecting with her Latinx roots because um, her mom was Cuban-American and her grandpa was born in Cuba. And so she's... Um, getting to know that side of herself that she's been missing um, that she didn't really connect with before the language um, her grandpa quizzing her on Spanish that she doesn't know the food and it makes her remember her mom and so it's a it's a some it's a big summer of change and hopefully ultimately also hope and um, and finding who you are and where you belong and meeting new friends along the way so that's the Dreamweaver. Great. Adriana, could you tell us about your book? Uh, sure. So The Total Eclipse of Nestor Lopez uh, stars Nestor, who is a kid in a military family. So his dad is deployed in Afghanistan uh, throughout the book. And so Nestor is used to having to move around a ton, but he finally gets a chance to live off of an army base when he moves in with his abuela in New Haven, Texas. And so Nestor's one goal, even though he's certain his mom is going to just sit him down at any moment and tell them they're moving again, is to make sure that no one finds out his deepest, darkest secret, which is that he can talk to animals. But little by little, the animals in town start going missing, and Nestor finds out that they are being taken by Etule Vieja, which is a witch that can turn into various animals. So Nestor has to decide if he's going to risk revealing his secret in order to save everybody. And I feel like he would be really good friends with the characters in our other books, given their shared culture and the fact that they move around a ton, right, Reina? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Love that intertextuality. So Donna, <laughs> could you tell us about your book? Sure. Um, this is Lupe Wong Won't Dance. And it came out in September with Levine Garrido in their kind of first launch group. Lupe Wong Won't Dance is about 12-year-old Lupe Wong, who, you know, her biggest dream in life is to be um, a pitcher in the major leagues and kind of breaks some of those um, social and gender barriers. And Lupe is always a kid with a cause. She is um, angry about dress codes and other things that feel uh, unjust. And so this little social justice warrior shows up to PE one day and finds out she's going to have to square dance and she is having none of it. And it's kind of a comedy of errors and also learning to speak up for yourself, maybe at an age where you don't always feel like you have a voice, but also um, she represents what I think a lot of kids feel that they, they don't get to have a voice um, in those middle school years. And so Lupe takes it to the extreme and oftentimes it doesn't end well for her, but she learns lessons along the way and friendship and what, you know, some causes are more important than others. 
Gracias a todos. So in Carmen Sandiego, Secrets of the Silver Lion, I drew on a lot of my own experiences feeling, when I was a kid, feeling disconnected from Latin America, even though my family was from there. And that informed Carmen Sandiego and her friend Millie's desire to go to Latin America and rescue this stolen silver lion. So I wanna hear from each of you. What are your main character's dreams and aspirations? And what about your own experiences inspired them? Reina. Um, I think a lot of Zoe's um, um, wrestling with how to help her family like that, although our my family's issues were very different and Zoe's a completely fictional story, I think that feeling of like, I want to just help everybody I love is something that I so closely identify with and tried to imbue Zoe with because she's a very um, caring person who really is very resourceful, even though she's only 12. And that feeling of also like, I'm not, I'm, I'm that I remember as a kid, like I'm only 12, but no, I can do a lot. Like I can do a lot more. Trust me, you know, grownups, I can do more and I can help you tell me everything that's going on and I will help figure out whatever problem is, is afoot. And of course the grownups are like, you're a child. You need to calm down <laughs> and like sit down. So I really, um, I remember vividly like that feeling. And of course, sometimes the grownups are right. Like you are a child, you need to sit down. But sometimes the grownups are underestimating um, how perceptive I think young kids can be and how they might see things that because the grownups are the ones in charge of, you know, everything and all the daily problems that maybe um, they could use maybe a kid's perspective on some things. And Zoe sort of like forces it <laughs> with, with various mistakes along the way. She sort of, um, she like, um, you know, she just goes on and makes all these new friends and just hatches her plot to help save grandpa's bowling alley. And so I deeply remember that. And also um, I grew up, I think, more connected to my Cuban heritage than Zoe did in the book because uh, my mom and my grandparents were born in Cuba. And um, my mom grew up in the US, but I was the first generation that was actually born here. But I remember speaking Spanish at home and being very close to extended family and eating Cuban food all the time. And so I felt a lot more connected. But Zoe is second generation. And in the book, she has been traveling all over the country. And so she um, she like is coming to really appreciate her heritage that she didn't know that much about, which is, I think, something I did as an adult where like I grew up with it. But I always wanted to like fit in and to do like, I don't know, like I wanted to be like the kids in TV sitcoms and like, you know, there wasn't very much Latinx representation growing up. There's more now, but you know, still not enough. And so I wanted to just fit in. I don't think I really came to truly appreciate my heritage until I was a grown up, even though I was in it every day. So I like and tried to instill some of that in Zoe too, like that appreciation, although she came to it much more wisely, much more um, at a much younger age. I love that. Adriana. Um, I think for Nestor, uh, given that he's a kid with a parent in the military, his biggest aspiration is probably just to have his dad come home safely. And I drew on uh, my own experiences of having my husband deployed the first four years we were married um, to inform that part of his character. Um, there's a part in the book where Nestor talks about how much he does not like the military reunion videos. And that is something that we share because 
when you do have a loved one who's deployed, uh, Nestor discusses this in the book, you don't know like, is Abuela taking me to go get ice cream or am I gonna be surprised by dad? Am I going to the dentist or am I gonna be surprised by dad? And so that's something that's always in the back of your mind when you do have uh, somebody that you care about who is away from you. And so I drew upon that to inform that part of uh, Nestor's character. But I think the other aspiration that he has is to have a sense of, of home and, and permanence uh, and stability given that he has had to move um, so much. And he's never really felt like a part of something because every time he tried to join a soccer team or anything else, they moved. Um, and so he's perfectly comfortable just kind of existing in his own little world with the animals that he can talk to. And not that I can talk to animals, spoiler alert, but I do, I am also perfectly comfortable existing in my own little world like Nestor does. Um, so those were definitely uh, things that I drew on in my own experiences to uh, inform Nestor and what his aspirations and dreams are. Avarian, I think you might still be able to talk to animals one day. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Donna, what about you? So, you know, for Lupe, she wants to play baseball and she wants to be the first female pitcher in the major leagues. And when I was growing up, I grew up playing fast pitch and I always wanted to play baseball, but girls couldn't play baseball. We girls, you know, were relegated to playing softball and it always bugged me. Not that I didn't love playing fast pitch. I did. I played it, you know, up through into college, but um, I didn't like being told no. I didn't like being told that I couldn't do something. And that's, you know, for Lupe, although she does play baseball, she doesn't like hearing no. And so she's just, her aspiration is to be the first female pitcher in the major leagues. And I want to say, I have to add this in at the time that we're filming this, Kim Ang this week, if anybody knows this, became the first female general manager in the major league baseball this week. And it just, it was one of those moments that for the Marlins, I just like wept watching this. I'm like, oh my gosh, this can happen. And when I was writing this, I got some critique and some feedback that, you know, a girl couldn't pitch in the major leagues. And I'm like, okay, not so long ago, people would have said a female couldn't be a major league general manager. So anyhow, I think that it's important to send that message along that you can have these aspirations to be something that might seem insurmountable. And if we let kids, you know, see these characters and see them in books, they'll go, wait a minute, I want to be this and learn how not to, you know, someone says no, just kind of go, okay, you can have your opinion, but here I go. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. But um, that was important for me with Lupe is to show what she wanted to do and to show that she's, she's doing it. So I think that's my, the main point with, with what she wants. Yeah, I think so many of us have such strong convictions and it's so important um, to sort of have models of how you deal with like having that like deep, uh, you just wanna do certain things, you feel really strongly about things and the world is standing in your way. So that's Lupe Wong is such a good example of that. Chantel. Yes, I think in terms of the question of, you know, what did we draw from our own experience to create these characters? I drew a lot um, from my own sort of family structure growing up uh, to create Callie's family. So like Callie, my parents divorced, 
Um, and I had a dad who was largely absent from my life. And it's something that Callie and her brothers are struggling with a great deal. Um, and there's a lot of things that Callie wishes she could make different in her life. And I think she's similar to um, the character in the Dreamweavers because she just, her, what she would really love to do most is just help everyone, right? Like make things right for everyone. And not only is she, you know, she, uh, you know, her parents have divorced, but her, her beloved aunt has passed away. So she's a grieving child as well. Um, and that's not to say that her world hasn't um, moved on, that she's not living in it fully because she is, right? She has friends and she has fun and uh, she's a fun loving kid too, but all of these other pressures are being put on her too. And there comes a moment at, towards the end of the squad where she's given a choice, right? Use your powers to help yourself or help others. And she could go either way there, you know, and I won't spoil the choice that she makes. But um, I think that was that was something that I wanted to um, bring out in the book, right? That, that we can use these gifts to help other people, you know, in, in some way. But I guess the other thing too, it's interesting listening to everyone talk about their characters' aspirations, you know, for themselves, because I was, I took Callie in a different direction. She um, is one of those kids and she reminds me a little bit of my eldest daughter who, whenever anyone asked her, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? She always would say, I don't know. And it would sort of panic her a little bit, right? Because she didn't have, you know, she doesn't have any, you know, particular goal right now. She's very young, you know, or any like hobbies that don't sort of go away after three weeks. You know what I mean? Like, like not sticking to any one thing, right? She's not sort of gifted in any, you know, one thing, but she's terrific all around, right? And she will obviously find her way. But I think so often kids feel this pressure to be like, what is my thing? Like, what is my thing with a capital T, you know? And Callie doesn't have a thing. And in fact, when she's assigned her muse, um, sort of her muse category, she's the muse of epic poetry. And she's like, I don't even know what that is, right? Everyone else is like, music and theater and you know like these very nameable things and she's like what is epic poetry i've never even heard of this thing you know and so for her it's also about finding identity and finding the things that she loves and also being okay with not knowing yet you know in the face of a best friend who wants to be a singer and it becomes a pop star and have all of these very very specific goals in mind and callie's a little bit like i'm just callie Right. And is, is that enough just to be myself right now at 11 years old, you know? And so her aspirations are just to be reg a regular kid, you know? Mm. Yeah. So for those of you who are watching who are Latinx yourselves, you know that there are things about growing up as a Latina kid in the United States that are awesome and things that are really hard. And that's true of our characters as well. So for all of our panelists, could you tell us what are some of the unique joys and the unique challenges that your characters face because of their identities? So Adriana, let's start with you. Um, I think uh, for Nestor, the joy that he has, especially um, when the book opens is that he's finally living with his abuela who's his strongest connection to his culture. So he gets to wander in the kitchen and she's making frijoles negros or pastelitos or anything. And so there's that, they talk about, you know, Celia Cruz, they talk about music. And I think there's also a moment where he connects with her because he's come home from school and he's just having one of those moments that I had at his age and my own son has, where just the world is heavy on my shoulders and no one understands what I'm going through. And he's, uh, 
expressing that to his abuela, you know, uh, saying that she doesn't know what it's like to have to start, keep having to start over every time they move. And she goes ahead and shares with him basically her immigration story, which mirrored uh, my dad's immigration story is where I drew that from, of having to come to the U.S. by themselves, not knowing the language, not having anybody that they could rely on. Um, and so I just I liked that Nestor was able to make that connection with an older generation, with someone who really is the representation of his culture. And so it was really a joy, as we're saying, for me to write that for him, where he could enjoy his heritage by living with his abuela. In terms of the struggles that he faces because he's Latinx, um, I can honestly say I don't think I have any written in the book because my goal with writing the book was to showcase a Cuban American character being the hero of a story um, so that not only could fellow Cuban American kids see that, but also non-Latinx kids could see Cuban American characters saving the day. Um, so I actually, I, I don't believe that I have anything in the book where Nestor is struggling with his identity or is going through something negative with other people because he's Cuban American. Uh, because I feel like I really just wanted to focus on the joy that being Cuban American brings him and how he can connect with his abuela. Awesome. What about you, Donna? So, you know, Lupe is a complicated character. She's based on my daughters and she is, you know, I'm mixed race. I'm Mexican American and white and my kids are half Chinese. And so uh, my older daughter is full Chinese. She's adopted. But um, so Lupe is kind of based on my younger daughter. And it was, um, you know, it, it was more so navigating different cultures. And I think many of us who are mixed race, we, you can, you, it can create a challenge, but it more so is something we navigate. And it's um, for Lupe, it's this wonderful thing that she has these two sets of grandparents. She has her Chinese side of the family and her Mexican American side of the family. And, and while there are differences in those two cultures and we, there are, there's a scene where we get to see them together and how they communicate and the things that happen with them, there's a joy to having these two cultures and there's a love of grandparents and family that I, I felt was really important to show. And that, you know, even though she's navigating two, two different cultures, you can see more about the similarities in those cultures than you can just the differences. You see the love of family and, and um, there's like a food battle between grandmothers, which, you know, that grandmas are, feel have strong opinions about their recipes and foods. And, you know, they're all shoving food in front of Lupe, like mine is better. And she's like enjoying this. She's like, I get all this food. But, um, but as far as the struggles, there was, there's only one sentence and I left it in the book and it was something that happened to me as a child. And it was just this random comment from a kid and I didn't want it to be dwelled upon, but this boy, um, they were twins. They used to pick on me. And one of them said, well, they were t something about pop rocks and Coke. And he said, well, that's what happens when you mix things up referring to me. And I put this in the book and I said, okay, I remember how I handled it and it was with silence. And I'm like, I wanted 
to address that. This is cathartic when we write because we get to address the things that happen to us. So Lupe gets to address it and she kind of just brushes it off. Like, you know, and, and I was like, okay, that's really what I wish I had done. I hadn't dwelled on it. I should have said, well, you know, that's just a, a really unintelligent comment that that kid made. And I wish that I had done that as a child. So I think that, you know, Lupe, while she, again, she relishes in the, the having these two cultures and the joy of those, she doesn't necessarily have a, a struggle with it. She just navigates the different communication styles with her grandparents. Yeah, I love that you said that, Donna, because I always feel like when people ask me about you know, are my books drawn from real life? I always say, I, I take things that I really went through, but I give my characters the things that I should have or wish I had known back then. Chantel. Yeah, so, so it's interesting, you know, for me setting Cali in Miami, um, which is a minority majority city, right? And so when you look at a city like Miami and you look at the governance of the city, for example, our mayor is Cuban American, like everyone in charge, right, is Cuban American. Um, Callie's teachers would largely be Cuban American, right? So she, it's not for a lack of mirrors, right? And you talk about that, the Latinx experience in other places, you know, I lived for nine years in Alabama and my kids were born, you know, born and being raised there. They had no mirrors in Alabama, right? And then we moved here to Miami, which is, you know, where I'm from and suddenly mirrors everywhere. Right. And so and it, and it changes this question of um, what are the struggles? Right. Because the struggles then change um, for Callie. She doesn't really come up against anything, um, you know, really terrible in the book. Um, but she has a couple of learning moments. And that's when she meets the other muses because they're from all over the world and they're introducing all new things to her. Right. And so she's. Um, and there, and she's bringing them into her home, you know, and she's realizing by contrast that maybe not everyone lives the way she lives, right? It's, and it's a kind of an awakening moment. And so, you know, when the, the Muse squad first comes to her house, the first thing they encounter um, is a giant, giant portraits of her and her brothers during, for their first communion, you know what I mean? And for the first time in her life, she looks at them and thinks, those are maybe a little tacky, right? <laughs> like, it's not something that would have entered her, her, you know, consciousness until that moment when she sees other people's eyes on them, you know, and she realizes, wait a minute, like they're not growing up the way I'm growing up. And so it's not necessarily a struggle, but I think it's something that particularly for Cuban kids and Cuban American kids here in Miami, um, understanding their privilege, being in a city that operates the way this one does, um, and understanding that, that 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 experience that they have here in Miami is not the same for other Latinx people or even other Cubans in other cities in the United States is a really important um, thing um, for them to learn, an important learning moment. And so not so much the struggle, I don't see it as a struggle, but definitely I wanted to introduce that, sort of broaden her horizons a lot. Yeah, Reina. <laughs> Sorry, I had a, a little trouble unmuting. Um, in the Dreamweaver, Zoe, I think um, the joys, like Adriana said, um, include like getting close to her grandpa because he is um, like the most Cuban person in her family because her mom passed away and her grandma, her abuelita passed away and her dad is not Cuban. So she's um, really enjoying getting to know her grandpa better and to um, learn a little bit more Spanish with him, even though it's a little 
nerve wracking um, when she's pop quiz and she doesn't know the answers. And she sort of struggles with not um, like actually like Adriana said, I identified a lot with what you said because I didn't make being Latinx um, a struggle. I wanted like from the outside world in the book, I wanted um, to show like a Cuban character, a Cuban American character really thriving and um, overcoming just being, you know, just existing. But her struggle as second generation comes in sort of more internally where she's um, wrestling with like, am can I even claim this? Am I enough? And also with like an inherited culture clash that she sort of just observes as affecting her in terms of, um, you know, where is she gonna live? Is she gonna go with dad or with grandpa? But this inherited culture clash between her dad and her grandpa, cause her grandpa is, uh, they don't get along and he really blames his son-in-law for um, his daughter not only passing away, although it was a health issue that he really shouldn't blame her for, but for um, taking her away because his perspective as an older um, Cuban grandpa uh, was that, you know, extended family should live close to home and he built this business for his daughter to take over. And then this um, guy that she married, like, has her, like, schlepping all over the country uh, away from him. So he didn't get to spend her final years with her and of course she passed away unexpectedly before the book begins so there's all this baggage that um that zoe inherited <laughs> that she observes playing out between the, um, her dad and her grandpa and that she's sort of like trying to to just understand and to figure out where like what is her perspective what should like what does she want out of life where does she belong and what should her dreams be should she dream of going all over the place so she dream of like putting down firm roots as a kid right now like what she really wants is to put down roots um said zoe awesome so i want each of us to leave kids with that one thing we want them to know so for me the one thing i want kids to know is that the histories and cultures of latin america and the united states are deeply intertwined. Latine people are the United States. So if each of you could tell us one thing that you want kids to know, Donna. I, I'd like to kind of take your idea and go with that and that whatever you are is special and that you don't have to deny any part of yourself and that take every part of yourself and be the best you can, you can be and and um to appreciate yourself for who you are and don't try to be something you're not because you think someone else wants you to be that be who you want to be and you'll be happy and you'll be successful and you'll have a good life something um I, I want to steal both of yours. <laughs> Those are both really great. Um, and, and in New Squad, the um, the muses have nine rules that they follow. And I was careful in, in composing those and thinking about how these might be more broadly um, taken in, you know, by a reader, because I think they are not necessarily rules we should all follow, but just sort of nice sentiments about how to be a good person in the world or nice ideas about how to be a good person in the world. And I think my favorite one is all places, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, inspiration knows no borders. Um, and so, yeah, I think sort of building on what the both of you said, plus um, that that kids should feel, you know, 
um, free to love the things they love, be inspired by whatever it is that tickles them, you know, like chase those, go down those rabbit holes, you know, of interest. Um, and that everything is going to turn out all right in the end if they follow their passions. Raina. I love what everyone has said. And also, um, I guess would maybe try to, uh, I'm like, I love it. I don't even know if I'm adding anything, but um, what I'd focus or emphasize would be um, to enjoy whatever you can out of whatever moment you're living in. Cause like, I felt like as a kid, I always thought, and even now as an adult, I still think like, once this next challenge is overcome or once this other problem is solved or once the pandemic ends, <laughs> especially right now, um, you know, then it, everything will be sunshine and rainbows. And it's really, I mean, you never know. <laughs> you just never know what's going on. And, and being a kid is fleeting, but also at the same time, I, I think sometimes people go the other way and they say like being a kid was the best time of your life. And it's like, Oh, I don't know. That makes me sad. No, being every moment, we should try to find the best out of every moment. Of course, there's going to be highs and lows, low lows, and hopefully high highs, but just try, I don't know. Every moment has something, hopefully. <laughs> uh, so just try to find the good in, in any moment in being a kid and, and in being an adult too. There will always be something you wish was different or in a lot of things. And there will always be something that was good back then that you wish you could go back and grab. So. I don't know. It's easier said than done. I like giving advice better than taking it. And Adriana? I think for mine, um, it might be a little bit more pragmatic than what we've uh, been talking about. And I just draw on this because of my background as a former educator. But I've always told students to never be apologetic about what they love reading. If you love to read graphic novels, if you love to read webtoons, fan fiction, comics, nonfiction, I don't care. Find something that you absolutely love reading and dive into those stories, dive into that information. And you don't have to apologize for it because we all love different things. We all have different interests. And I think when we move away from the concept of what I should be reading, to what I enjoy reading, we're more likely to create lifelong readers and learners and curious people that way. So yeah, I would say don't apologize for what you find fascinating and enjoy. Awesome, that is great advice. So we are going to hear directly from kids right now. We have some kid questions ready to go. Okay, so this question is coming from Briellen, Briellen B, who is in the fourth grade in Atlanta, Georgia. Briellen, thank you so much for sending your question. Let's hear it. Hi, my name is Briellen, and today I'm wondering why do you, like, where do you get your ideas? Thank you. Goodbye. That is a brilliant question. Mm -hmm. People always want to know where are authors getting their ideas? So, Chantel, where did you get your ideas? Yes, what a good question from Brielle, thank you. Um, I get them, well, you know, it's been really a challenge in this pandemic because I tend to get ideas when I'm out and about in the world, you know, and, and being perceptive to the, to the things around me and especially going to museums. Um, I have written a number of historical novels before Muse Squad, and a lot of them have come from museum exhibits, right, or from just wandering through 
libraries and just picking random books off the shelves, like that kind of stuff. But Muse Squad specifically was inspired by being at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and waiting for one of my kids to uh, use the restroom. And there was a bust of a muse and I was taking a picture of it and the thought came out of nowhere. What if they'd been children? What if the muses had been children? And I stopped and I wrote it and typed it into my phone. Um, but just being very open uh, to ideas and those bolts of, bolts of lightning that maybe they are muse provided um, ideas, but just being open to those is where I usually, where, usually where books come from for me. What about you, Raina? I get ideas everywhere. Um, and often when I can't write them down, like in the shower or when I have my hands full, like I'm putting something in the oven or like cooking something. Um, but um, so I think that inspiration can really strike anywhere. When I um, get like a random thought as soon as I can, I'll like, you know, wash my hands or hop out of the shower and I'll try to like scribble it down or put it in my phone. So I'm like forever finding random notes. Like, I don't know, like I was at the supermarket and like I saw the fish and I was like, the fish are looking at me, write that down. Maybe like a character would say that. So sometimes it's an idea just for like a bit of dialogue or a random observation. And it's not like a full blown book idea. And sometimes it's like a full blown premise. Um, so inspiration comes all different ways. I think all those muses, they act all, um, they act very differently. And um, I think when I sit down and I really have an idea that I really need to commit to and like flush out, then I sort of try to think of experiences I've gone through or, or more often even feelings that I've had. Um, Cause I try to, I, I try to stay away from ever writing like a, a friend or a loved one like into a, into a novel because I don't want them to read it and deconstruct it and be like, that was me. <laughs> so I try very hard to make everything really fictional. But what I, I do add are the feelings. Like I know what it is to be really angry or really sad or really happy or really worried or really, you know, whatever it is, I try to like, um, I try to think I'm inspired by like my my relationships and, and family and friends and everything that I've done. Um, I sort of try to draw on on like that um, that background when I like sit down and I already have like the structure of a fictional plot <laughs> in front of me. Yeah, I think what you're question. like Raina is trying to tell us is everybody needs to have a writing utensil with them at all times, <laughs> including yes. in the shower. I think that's the takeaway. So, um, Adriana, how about you? Well, I love Chantel's answer because I'm the complete opposite. The real world absolutely petrifies me and I try to interact with it as little as possible um, because normally I'm just inside my head. I am a very uh, distracted, easily person because I'm making up just stories and imagery in my head. I get very frustrated when I have to stop doing that and interact with the real world. So for me, my my story ideas are just what's already been tumbling around in my head and I just try to make them make sense typically by forcing them into a what if question. If I can have my books driven by a what if, then I feel like all those ramblings can be focused into a plot. So like with Nestor Lopez, it was what if you could talk to animals. With Cube in my pocket, it's what if you had to move to an entirely new country by yourself. So yeah, uh, whatever I can take these distractions and ramblings and focus them, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, because as Raina has said, you know, 
they're always with you no matter where you are. And sometimes it's very inconvenient for you to try to write them down. Um, but no, the, the more likely I am to be able to focus them into a question, that's where I get my story ideas from. Love it. And Donna, where do you get your ideas? Much like Adriana, Adriana, I get them from the what ifs. And um, so Lupe Wong won't dance. She actually kind of looks like my daughter's as well. But my my younger daughter came home one day for school and was upset about square dancing in PE. She couldn't square dance with Gracie. She was going to have to dance with a boy. She was going to have to hold this boy's hand. And I was like, okay, what if there was a character who could actually speak up? So the character Lupe Wong popped up. Um, and then I, for my picture book, which this is the, the cover hasn't really been showed, but El Kukui is scared too. So you're kind of seeing it here. Um, that was off a writing prompt and it was a writing prompt that said, take the thing that scared you the most as a child and somehow make it cute and adorable. And so, um, I was scared to death of El Kukui, which my grand was in my grandmother's closet for sure. And it, you know, if anybody knows the stories of El Kukui, it's kind of this threat to get you to behave. And it's not like the American boogeyman who's kind of abstract. The El Kukui, like, you know what he looks like. He's got fangs and he's scary and free. And I'm like, okay, well, how can I make him cute and adorable? And so I address that fear through a child who had, you know, other fears. And um, again, like I, I have another middle grade book coming out with this year called The Last Quintista. And it was like, what if this girl was the last storyteller in the future? What would happen? And so it, it's kind of those what ifs and something normally happens. There's a situation in life. I might hear something on NPR. I might talk to my kids. Anything could happen. And I do try to write it down as quick as that because I, I will forget the idea. And then later I go, what was that really great idea I had? And then I forget. So if you ever have good storytelling ideas, do write them down because sometimes you just forget. <laughs> awesome. So let's have another question. Okay, this one is from Ella W who is in the fifth grade in New York City where I am from. My name is Ella and my question is, when you start writing a book, do you already have everything that's going to happen planned out in your mind? This is from Ella is a prepared writer. She is thinking about how do you make a book happen? So um, let's start with Raina. Raina, do you have everything planned out when you start writing? That is such a great question, Ella. You and I are on the same page. I really do try to, I always try to, um, outline. And so before I can sometimes get my pen to paper or I can get on my computer, I am planning it out in my brain. But then as soon as I can, yes, I start typing. And I love typing because I can just delete and move chapters around. And it almost feels like being a magician because I'm like, oh, and like, chapter nine is now happening in chapter two. It's like, I just feel so powerful. Um, like just changing the worlds of these characters that I've totally made up. Um, so I love awesome. writing it all out and being prepared. But I also think it's, um, it's fun to not have too extensive of an outline. And like, if you're sometimes you get in the zone, and you're just writing, and you're having fun with it, and you're maybe you're not even sure how this is all going to tie in. But sometimes you find that um, you might go off the outline and that's okay. It might make the story better. It might be fun to sort of see where, like you feel sometimes like your characters take on a life of their own and now they're they're the ones writing it and you're you're just like um, their muse. I don't know, like they're their tool. <laughs> I mean, they're you're just listening writing to them. You. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
<laughs> and Adriana, what's your writing process? Oh, it's a mess, but um, I do usually, as long as I can outline about two thirds of the book, I go ahead and start writing because just like Raina said, things are gonna change, characters are gonna decide to do different things. I never have an idea of how it's gonna end because I like to be surprised as my characters are with how it all wraps up. But usually if I can get two thirds of the way through, I go ahead and start writing. What about you, Chantel? Uh, yes, I try not to start a book unless I know what the last scene is. And that's new for me. I used to like just kind of wing it the whole way. But um, I learned some hard lessons with other books. And so um, now if I know what that last scene is, I know what I'm reaching for, then I feel like, okay, I'm good to go and I can start this book. So definitely I'm a planner. And what about you, Donna? I do very tiny plots. I basically write chapter one. This happens one or two sentences because I know once the characters like come alive, they're going to take it in a total different direction than what I planned. So I'm, I'm a bit of a plotter, but not so much. Love that. Okay. Let's hear our last question. Okay. This one is from Savannah L who is in the fifth grade in Connecticut. And she asks, have you always wanted to be a writer? So I'm just going to answer that because I love answering this question because when I was in the fifth grade, I knew that I didn't know I wanted to be a writer, but I knew I wanted people to listen to me. I had two older siblings. They never let me get a word in edgewise and I wanted to be heard. I had so much to say and writing is a way to make yourself heard. So Adriana, did you always want to be a writer? I did actually in fourth grade, my teacher was a published author and that was the first time I saw somebody who had was just like you said emma like they were being heard they were taking all those stories that for me growing up with my distracted brain and all these things tumbling around they were putting them to good use and putting them on paper so i started a family newspaper that i would distribute to the people in my family that had like the gossip column of who my sister had a crush on and then i would write scathing reviews of the books i was being forced to read in school that i didn't like so like Emma said, words have power. You can be listened to. And so um, I've always, I'm always telling stories in my head. So yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer because it lets me pretend to be productive with what's going on in my brain all the time anyways. Donna, what about you? Savannah, I love this question as well. And um, I like Emma, I felt like I was, but I felt like I was a storyteller. Like I would make up these stories in my mind and I wanted people to hear the stories. I didn't know I wanted to be a writer until I was older. And then I realized, oh, that's how you do that is the, the weird stories that come up in my mind. I actually have to put them down somewhere. People aren't always going to listen to me. So that's kind of how I figured it out. But I was, I was older. I wasn't a kid when I discovered I wanted to be a writer. I thought I did, but life didn't take me in that direction until I was older. So it's never too late. <laughs> Something. Yeah, similarly, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer until I was in college, but I do remember being just about the fifth grade also and writing a story where I imagined the future. And it was, I imagined all of my classmates on our 20th re class reunion, and I gave everyone these really fab futures. And people in the class started passing the story around and until so everyone in the class had read it, and they were all so happy and they wanted me to write another one. And it was that first little thrill of like, 
wait a minute, someone's listening to little old me? Um, and they liked that story I wrote. And it was at first, it was a little taste of um, what was possible. And I think since then, probably in my deepest secret heart, um, I knew that this was gonna be the future. Love it. Uh, Raina. Yes, I have always wanted to be a writer. Um, actually, I think since I could put like chunks, since I knew how to put chunks of text together, which I think um, like I, I sort of was able to write like a full page of text. I was like, I can remember um, writing like my first stories in second grade. Um, and it just felt like an escape. Like I, I just had so much fun. I remember writing about like kids who ate peanuts all day and turned into peanuts and like kids who like, I don't know, turned into magic turtles. And it was just like, any, I can make anything happen. I felt like <laughs> this is so fun. Like I, I, I still feel like, um, although writing has challenges sometimes, it's like the most fun. But for a long time, I would say that it was um, not something I thought was like, I was always writing, but I never really thought like it was realistic. And I always thought, like I, I would write these like random notes everywhere, but like, I didn't know if anything was ever gonna come of them, if I could ever actually string these random notes together actually until I learned to outline and to plot a story. And then it was like, oh, I have this outline. I can just now keep going. Like if I can just organize it all, then I can maybe make a whole book shaped thing happen. And so um, that was sort of my path to, to writing. Amazing. So writing is power. So I wanna thank the kids, especially who sent in questions. Those were excellent <laughs> questions and they really, um, got us to think about our work as writers. So thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you, Chantel, Reina, Adriana, Donna, and to everyone thank who you. is watching, muchísimas gracias, que lean muchos más, and thank you for attending Hopefully Ever After at the first ever Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival.